Well, good morning. I hope you came ready to hear the sex talk at church. Not every Sunday you get to hear that. Um, in all honesty, it should happen a lot more often, right? I mean, this is an issue that all of us deal with. We are all sexual beings. God created us that way. He created us. He, he gave us the gift of sex. He created us with sexual organs and gave us the gift of sex for pleasure and procreation. But as the video shared with us and as our own experience speaks to, we are broken, are we not? I'm not nervous to preach about sex this morning, not one bit. However, I do want to be very sensitive with it because I know this is a very heavy, hurtful, and close-to-home topic. And some of you may feel incredibly awkward sitting next to your parents or sitting next to your boyfriend or girlfriend or sitting next to your fiancé or sitting next to your spouse, right? I mean, these issues are deep and intimate. And we all know, if you've been married for more than the wedding night, you know that sex isn't always what you dreamed it to be, that not every time you're with your partner that it's like the movies, and if you are single, you know that there's this internal impulse and drive to find sexual fulfillment and pleasure. And if you've been around the church for any length and period of time, you, you know, or at least I hope you've heard God's teaching that sex is for the friendly confines of marriage, one man and one woman. We're going to talk about that today. But I know that's not the reality of this room. It's just, it's just not. It's not the reality of this room. In fact, this week my computer crashed and so I went to Ridgedale Mall to get it fixed at the Apple store. And after I got it fixed, I went into the center court, like the center area of the mall. And I was sitting there working on this sermon, working on Jesus on Lust, studying Matthew chapter 5. And as I'm sitting there working, this, this man and this woman come over and I, I see them kind of off in the distance and I see them look at me and we made eye contact and I looked away because sometimes people do weird things at malls, right? Have you ever experienced this? They come over and they sit down and they say, hey, do you mind if we talk for a second? I said, nope, that, I was trying to avoid that, right? I'm trying to work on my sermon on lust here in this public space and I didn't really want to have a conversation, but I wasn't going to be rude after all. I am Minnesota, so I had to be passive aggressive and Minnesota nice. And I said, yeah, sure, have a seat and we'll talk. So they sit down and they just say, you know, we're just wandering around the mall today, just, just seeking God, praying for people. And so we saw you here and we wanted to pray for you. And I said, that's amazing. Thank you so much. They said, how can we pray for you? And I said, well, I'm working on a sermon on Jesus on lust and <laughs> this is a big topic. And so you can pray for that. And they were both a little bit, you know, they were like, oh, you're a pastor. Okay. So we talked about that. And um, so they started praying for me and about halfway through the prayer, the lady just started bawling. And, and she said, you know, can I, can I pause the prayer and can I actually turn this around on you? Can, can, can you pray for me? I feel like the reason that the Holy Spirit sent me over to you today is I have a son who's struggling with sexual purity and she's sobbing and her heart is broken. She said, since you're, you're studying and you're a pastor, can you pray for my son? And I, and I looked at her and I said, Ma'am, it's not just your son. I, I don't mean to minimize the struggle. It's every son. You're not alone. And in fact, it's, it's every daughter as well. And while this struggle takes different shapes and forms, this is a human issue. We are broken beyond belief. In, in many areas, but uniquely in our sexuality, we live in a culture that is broken. And not just a culture. It's not like 2019 cultural problem. 
this problem has existed since the fall of mankind, since Adam and Eve disobeyed God and, and took his, his law into their own hands and, and tried to, tried to um, tell themselves that they knew better. They listened to the lie of the serpent. They ate the forbidden fruit. And ever since then, our world has been sexually broken. And so I want to go into this issue very sensitively. Very sensitively. You are loved by God. In fact, I wasn't planning to start here, but let's start here. Go open up your Bible at on page 566, Isaiah chapter 1. This isn't the passage we're going to study here today, but I, I want you to hear these words from God before we get into this topic on sexual brokenness. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. It's on page 566. This is God speaking to his people. He says, Come now, let us reason together says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool, white as snow. What an appropriate morning to be talking about this. Regardless of how deep and dysfunctional your, your sexual sin and sexual brokenness goes, God declares and he has promised and he is delivered in his son Jesus Christ that regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you've done, regardless of your reoccurring pattern with sexual brokenness, your sins, though they are scarlet, they can be made white as snow. They, though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. That's white and pure. Amen, church? That's what God declares over us and he promises that us and he delivers that to us through his son Jesus. And let's continue on with this verse. If you are willing and obedient. Okay, so there's, there's some following that we need to do in this. We're going to get into that in Matthew chapter 5 in just a minute. But he says, if you are willing and obedient, if you, if you would come after me, if you would repent, if you would follow, if you would come, you shall eat the good of the land. I mean, our sexual brokenness, our sexual sin, it, it's caused by this, this good desire that God gave us fulfilled in a wrong way when it's... When it's sexual sin and brokenness, right? God gave us this good, deep desire to seek satisfaction in the union with another human being. And God says, regardless of your breaking that union, regardless of how you have expressed yourself sexually, I will make you white as snow. And if you are willing and obedient, if you follow me, you shall eat the good of the land. There is a better day in the future for you, church, regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you've done as you are willing and obedient to follow Jesus. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so God is incredibly gracious with us. A couple statistics. One major porn website, I'm not even going to share the name, because I know how the human heart works. We, we hear names of websites and we hear statistics and Jeremiah chapter 17 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. And so sometimes we hear websites, we hear statistics and, we, and, and, and man, I'm going to speak to you for a second. Our minds, we can start creating little ways of, oh, I heard something and so how can I accidentally fall into that so that I can see something that my eyes desire. And so I'm not going to share websites with you and even as I share these stats, I share these to, to help us, to, to bring into the light the problem that exists. Men, hear me very clearly. As I share these stats, 
you will likely feel something inside of you to say, well, if I just look at something, it's a lot less worse than these men who are deeply ingrained in pornography addiction. We're going to see what Jesus says here in a minute about sexual purity. But men, guard your hearts. Be careful as you listen to this. One major porn website reports that in 2018, they had 33 billion views. 33 billion views in one year alone. Is our world sexually broken? This isn't to shame you. This isn't to shame us. This is to bring into light a problem that the world is wrestling with and that the church is also wrestling with. 33 billion visits. How many people are in the world? 7 billion. Every minute this website tracks this, they have 64,000 visitors every minute. 207,000 videos viewed every minute. 528 new videos added to the playlist every minute. The pornography industry grosses annually more than Major League Baseball, National NBA, what does that stand for again? National Basketball Association, NBA, and the NFL combined. The pornography industry also grosses more than Apple, Google, Amazon, and Netflix combined. And this affects the church. 68% of church-going men admit to viewing pornography regularly. 68% admit. This is probably higher. 33% of church-going women admit to viewing it regularly. This wreaks havoc on society. Broken marriages are a result of this issue. 56% of divorced people who have been polled say pornography addiction has a direct correlation to the reason of their divorce. And of course it does. Comparison, disappointment, inadequacy, boredom in the bedroom. There's sex outside of the context of marriage. Just think about it even economically. Like God's, we're, we're going to see this this morning, but God's will and ways are the best for all of mankind, for the flourishing of the world. Think about the economic impact that, that, yes, porn, but then also just sexual brokenness, sex outside of the context of marriage has on the world. There is, the, annually, we spend $16 billion to treat STDs. What if sex stayed in the context of one man, one woman for life? Would we spend $16 billion treating STDs? No, because sex would be contained. It would be enjoyable. It would be in the right context. God knows what's best for human flourishing. $8 billion was spent on domestic abuse calls and, and crimes in the last year. $8 billion, and that's often tied to pornographic addiction and sexual violence. There's this crazy link between domestic abuse and sexual brokenness, sexual fantasy. 
Now again, I share this not to shame us. Not to shame us, but to name an often hidden reality within the church that we are as sexually broken as the non-believing world around us. The world is broken and in need of help. There is a lot of help and healing needed in this area, needed in the area of sexuality, and it can't be dealt with in the dark. It needs to come into the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as he always does, he seeks to bring our sin and shame into the light so that we can be healed. But I ask you to stand as I read our text for today, which is Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. It's on page 810 in the Pew Bible. Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. Jesus, you care so deeply and intimately for us. When, when you taught this truth, you weren't condemning your people. You weren't piling guilt and shame on your people. You were instructing your people in how to flourish and how to contribute to a society that honors people, that lifts people up, that doesn't use people for our own selfish gain and satisfaction, but rather lifts people up for, for their good. And so I pray this morning that you would speak to us, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would bring healing where healing is needed. I pray that you would bring self-control where self-control is needed. I pray that you would bring repentance where repentance is needed. I pray that you would bring hope where hope is needed. I pray that you would bring joy where joy is needed. I pray that you would bring unity where unity is needed. Holy Spirit, do your work in us this morning. May we not hear the accusation of the enemy. For Jesus has dealt with the accuser. He has silenced the accuser. We now stand before you, God, pure and clean because of the blood of Jesus. And so I pray that we would hear from you, Jesus, this morning for our good, for our growth, for your glory, and in the advancement of your gospel, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Four very intense verses, right? If a man even looks at a woman with lustful intent, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose the eye than your body to perish in hell. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, for it's better for you to lose the hand than for your body to perish in hell. Four incredibly intense verses. And we need to keep in mind that these verses are in the context of Jesus' life and teaching. As a young teenager, I remember reading this passage, and I desperately want, I grew up in a Christian home, my parents did a great job of sharing the gospel with me and making Jesus look glorious, and I desperately wanted to follow Jesus and do what he said. And I remember coming across this as a, as a young, struggling teenager and thinking, do I need to gouge out my eye if I take second glances at 
the girls in my school? Do I need to cut off my hand if, I, if it's leading me to sin? And I remember seriously thinking that. And I'm glad that I had too much fear to self-mutilate until I was old enough and mature enough to understand that Jesus here is using hyperbole to show us the seriousness of sin. Let's set the record straight. Before you run out of here and chop off a hand or gouge out an eye, that's not Jesus' intent. And if it is intent, he's missing the most important body part that you should get rid of, right? <laughs> In fact, Origen, one of the church fathers, castrated himself because he did not want to commit sin. But we all know what can happen in our mind. We all know what can go on in our heart. So it really doesn't have to do with the eye or the hand or the other body part. This has to do with something deeper. And in the context of Jesus' life and ministry, he's, he's trying to get his people to understand how serious sin is and how much joy it robs from us and how distant it makes him feel and how it pushes other people away and how it destroys our relationships. And so I want to share with you just a, a kind of grid that has been working me over the last couple of weeks and we're going to walk through this in this text. Here's, here's the statement. Jesus is far more demanding than most would like to think, far more sufficient than most have been taught, and far more patient than most would dare to believe. Jesus is far more demanding than most would like to think, and we certainly see that here in this passage, don't we? And you take this passage, isolate it, most people would not, they, they would think, Jesus said that? Jesus put lust and adultery on the same level? Jesus says if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That sounds pretty harsh and demanding. I Jesus is love. Jesus is grace. Jesus is patience. Jesus, is, Jesus wouldn't say something like that. Yeah, he did. It's right here. We read it. Jesus is more demanding than most people would like to think. Yet he is far more sufficient than most of us have been taught. I mean, it's so apparent to me that as I interact with Christians and as I search my own heart that we continually think that our salvation depends on our ability to do good works and to obey God. Do we not? It's because we've been undertaught that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. He's far more sufficient than most of us have been taught. And he's also far more patient than most dare to believe. I, I think we're so quick to think, well, and it's tied to the salvation piece because we think salvation depends on us or it rides on us. We think that God gets frustrated and mad with us and cuts us off when we struggle to break the same sin patterns and habits. So I want to use this statement and I want to walk through Jesus' teaching on lust using this as a grid for understanding what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. The first one, Jesus is far more demanding. He certainly is. And we have to take Jesus' words and apply them to our lives. Jesus is far more demanding than most people would like to think, than a lot of churches would teach you, and than, certainly than culture would like to say. Jesus is far more demanding. And first of all, the context of this passage is Jesus speaking to primarily a Jewish audience. There were some Gentiles following him and listening to him as well, but he's speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. So the Old Testament was their religious guidebook. It was the book given from God to his people to instruct his people, and unequivocally throughout the scriptures and throughout the New Testament, the context for sex is one man and one woman in marriage. Jesus never disagrees with that. Some people will say, well, 
you know, homosexuality isn't, it's okay now because Jesus doesn't address it, or, you know, we make concessions and we make all these different categories for what's okay based off of, well, did Jesus explicitly teach on this or that? Well, what we need to know is that Jesus is primarily teaching to a Jewish audience. He knows his audience. He knows that the people who he's instructing, they understood that the context for sexual pleasure and expression was in the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. Jesus never disagrees with that. Jesus upholds the Old Testament. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, he tells us that he comes to fulfill the law, all of the Old Testament pointing. He, he endorses it. Jesus is far more demanding than our culture would like to think. He upholds, I mean, this is radical and crazy in our culture, is it not? To say that sex is reserved for a marriage of one man and one woman. Bring that to work tomorrow. You're not going to be appreciated. This is the context for sex in Scripture. If we are to be kingdom people, if we are to embrace the kingdom of God, the culture that Jesus is setting up, that means conforming to this standard. Not the world's standard, not the world's interpretation of what marriage is or what sex is or how it can be used or where it can be shared or who can do who with what. We conform to the biblical standard that God has set out for us and that Jesus is in line with. And that is this context. So if you're checking out Park Community Church or if you've been here for a while and you are wondering, we unapologetically teach that sex is reserved for a marriage between one man and one woman. However, we want to do this graciously, graciously, graciously because we are broken not going to do it, you're welcome, but if I had everyone put up their hand to say, who has reserved sex for just this, we would be alarmed with how many people even grew up in the church have had sex outside of the context of one man and one woman. We are so broken, so broken. That's why the next part of the statement gets into Jesus' sufficiency and his patience, right? But let's stick with the demand for a minute. Just because we are broken and God is gracious with our brokenness doesn't mean that we change the standard, right? And that we lower the bar. Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, what Jesus does is, is he raises the bar. He says the Old Testament, it, it condemned adultery. But what I'm saying to you is that even lustful intent is on the same playing field as adultery. This is the next piece of demanding evidence that we see about Jesus, lustful intent is as serious as adultery. So adultery is having sex with someone who's not your spouse. It's breaking the marriage vow, and that was a, that was a command in the Old Testament, and Jesus here takes it deeper. He gets at the heart. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, verse 28. Men, who are, who's guilty? You don't have to put your hand up. And this applies to women, too. I mean, Jesus isn't saying that women never struggle with lustful intent and that adultery is never the fault of a woman. But what he is doing is he has a mixed audience here, right? He has men and women following him. He's instructing his followers on what the cultural expectations of his kingdom are. And if, if we were to... I mean, I don't even think we need to do a show of hands or anything on this, but 
who has used sex to demean and degrade and take advantage? What gender has primarily used sex to demean, degrade, and take advantage of the other gender? Male to female, right? I mean, hands down. Male to female. And this isn't always true. Yes, women are guilty of this as well. But hands down, in culture, men generally are the ones who are the primary consumers of pornography, who are the primary, they are, they are the sexually driven visually who run after using people for their own advantage and satisfaction. And, that, and Jesus is trying to prepare his church to be a safe place for women. That, that in my church, in my family, the men don't even look at the women and, and have that movie play in their mind. Come and, come and follow me and, and I will give you life. And here, here's how you can find the most sexual satisfaction and pleasure in marriage between one man and, un, and one woman. And in my community, in my culture, I, want, I am creating a safe place for women to flourish and to thrive. They don't have to worry about whether the men in their church, whether the men in their life who love Jesus are seeking to take advantage of them sexually or even undressing them with their mind. This is a safe place for women. That's what the church is for. And we're broken. Many of you have been abused within the church. And I'm sorry. But this is Jesus' call. He is creating a safe place, a safe space, a safe culture for women to flourish and for men to not get addicted. He's saying lustful intent is as serious as adultery. Adultery is the physical act, but lustful intent is also an act. It's not just the thought, it's not just an emotion, it's actually an act. You are causing your mind to dwell on something that it ought not to dwell on. And it's important here that Jesus says lustful intent. He doesn't say a noticed attraction. It's impossible for us to live in this world and not notice attractive people. Amen? Like, it's just impossible. You can't do it. Even if you were to gouge out your, your eyes and you were to be blind, you could generate a movie in your head. So it's impossible for us to, to, to avoid seeing attractive people. It's what we do with that attraction. Here's a, here's a um, definition for lust. Lust is, an, is a noticed attraction that turns into a godly, an ungodly obsession. Lust is a noticed attraction that turns into an ungodly obsession. It's when you start to notice an attractive person and your mind starts to wander about what it would be like to be with that person or it starts to undress them. And sometimes women, it works differently for you and not always, right? Women are visual creatures as well to a lesser extent generally than men. But for, for a woman, lust could be you begin to, you begin to see an emotionally um, expressive guy and your husband or the person you're with may not be emotionally expressive and so you start to lust after a guy who's emotionally expressive, or, or somebody who's just humorous and your guy isn't humorous. Or he used to be, but he lost that years ago when we got married. And so now look at this humorous person who makes me laugh. I want that. Lust is a noticed attraction turned into an ungodly obsession. And so Jesus here is condemning what we do with what we notice. He's, he's not saying bury your head in the sand and be ignorant to the attraction, whether that's personality or looks of people around you. He's saying, what do you do with it? Do you bring it to God? Do you submit it to God? 
The problem with lust is that it's taking something that isn't yours and using it for your own satisfaction and pleasure. And and it's taking the good context that God and Jesus demand for sex, it's taking it out of context and it's doing, it's creating your own context for sexual pleasure and expression. So Jesus here, he's saying, he, he is reiterating that sex is for one man, one woman in marriage. That lustful intent is as serious as adultery. So this, this raises the bar, right? I mean, we can't be thinking, I've avoided adultery. And some of you haven't. I know that's a real, in a, in a room this size, some people have experienced this. And God brings so much healing and hope here. Keep clinging to him. Keep, keep running after him. Many of you, you, you haven't, like, and you even justify what you do in your mind because you've never slept with another person. Jesus isn't letting you off the hook. He's saying what you do in your mind is just as serious as what, as what you could do with another person. And then thirdly, sexual sin is to be treated severely. This is the demanding call of Jesus. Here's the context for sex. Here's the teaching on lust that don't even look at another with lustful intent. That is, that is condemning to the point of hell. And sexual sin is to be treated severely. And why is this? Well, because it is a direct confronting of the image of God in other people. Jesus cares about humanity. He cares about society. He cares about human flourishing and loss and the pattern of it. I mean, the extreme example of pornography, it has so many, um, the, the, the fruit of pornography and porn addiction and, and lust and adultery just tears apart humanity and human flourishing. Tears it apart. And Jesus cares about his creation, you and I, created in his image. His heart is for us. And so he says, treat this severely because it is, it is undercutting what I have created. Sexual addiction, lust, is like a black hole that will lead your soul into hell. It, it, it will get its grips in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, and you won't even know how to relate to people any longer. And some of you know what I'm talking about. And so he says, treat sin severely. No, he's not actually literally saying, gouge out your eye, chop off your hand. But he is giving us a metaphor to how serious this is. Jesus is far more demanding. He's saying, get after it. Do whatever you need to do. Attack this sin at its root. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that that sexual sin is, is a sin against your own body. So get after it, attack it. But church, there's hope. Jesus is far more sufficient than most of us have been taught, right? Far more sufficient. Jesus overcame sexual temptation. Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way that we have been tempted with, yet without sin. He was tempted in every way that we are tempted, yet without sin. This means that Jesus noticed attractive people. And yet he never turned that noticed attraction into an ungodly obsession. He, he never 
lusted after another. This is amazing. Jesus is sufficient. He always said no. He always redirected. He always submitted the fleshly impulses to God the Father. I mean, Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. This is a mystery far too, far too mysterious for us to understand, right? But think about it, 100% man. That means he had a man's body. That means he had a man's urges. That means that his body functioned in the way that a man's body functions. That means he went through puberty when your body starts to do different things and you start to notice your body doing different things and you start to notice attraction. And your body, God wired us this way, your body has a natural reaction to notice an attractive thing and then to want to do something with that attractive thing. Jesus had a human body. Just like teenage boys, young men, have this, have this fleshly impulse. Jesus had a human body. And yet he never submitted to the urges of his flesh. He always submitted to the will of his father. He overcame sexual temptation. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Jesus is far more sufficient. Find your hope there, not in your own ability. Right? We're going to keep pushing, treat sin severely, attack it severely, but church, find your hope in Jesus' sufficiency. He overcame sexual temptation. Think about, now I'm speculating a bit here, so take it with a grain of salt. But in John chapter 4, there, there is a story where Jesus is at a well. He's all alone. And it says in John chapter 4, four that he was weary. He was tired. And a woman, an easy woman, who had had five husbands and was living with a sixth man now, comes to the well. Nobody's around. It's the middle of the day, which to us seems like broad daylight. You don't do anything there. But in their culture, that was when no one was around because they were all working or it was too hot. So they were in their basements. They would come out in the evening. Jesus is at this well all alone. He's tired. And an easy woman, a vulnerable woman, comes to the well. I, I don't know that Jesus, that she was attractive or not, but men, put yourself in that situation. When are you most inclined to take advantage of others, whether that's real, physical, in-person advantage or whether that's through images? When are you most inclined to take advantage of others and use them for your own benefit? When you're tired. John tells us in John chapter 4 that Jesus was tired. He was weary from the journey. And, and he's at this well, and this woman comes who's sexually broken. She's been married five times. She's living with a sixth man. She's slept around. And she comes to the well. What does Jesus do? He points her. He, he uses this imagery of water at the well, and he says that God will give you living water. He will satisfy the deep hunger of your soul. Jesus, in a, in a potentially vulnerable state, remember, he's, he's a 30-year-old virgin, it's hard to find one of those today because from the time that you're 12 through the rest of life, it's incredibly hard to not want to have sex. Am I right? Men, women, you too, but it takes more emotional connection and all of that. But like men, man, by the time you're 12, it doesn't take a whole lot for you to have something trigger and you want to make that happen. And so Jesus, he went through that, puberty, the whole bit, and he's here in this place with this vulnerable woman and he points her to Jesus as the soul-satisfying lover of her soul. Amen? Jesus overcame sexual temptation. 
He was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. So find your hope and your joy in Jesus' sufficiency, not your insufficiency, not your inability, not your brokenness. Find your hope in Jesus. Remember that we are saved by his perfect life and his sacrificial death. Regardless of your history, regardless of the reoccurring battle that you're facing, or maybe you, maybe you kicked that years ago, praise God for that, amen. But regardless of any of that, you are saved by who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, not your ability to kick your sin or your ability to clean yourself up. Jesus is far more sufficient, church. Far more sufficient. And, and to get that, we have to remember that Jesus is giving us this hard teaching on lust here in Matthew chapter 5 in the context of his life and ministry. He doesn't go into that in this passage, does he? No, like these followers, man, I, they're sitting there listening, and of course this is in a sermon, so they've, they, they've heard this thing in context. That's one of the challenges of exegetical preaching chunk by chunk is like we're looking at this isolated, but Jesus had this in a larger context, Right? And so he's, he's trying to communicate to his followers that this is a serious thing that must be dealt with severely. But in the context of Jesus' life and teaching, he tells his followers that he is the Messiah, that he is the sufficient Savior of the world. And then lastly, Jesus is far more patient than most of us would dare to believe. Salvation is immediate, but sanctification takes step-by-step obedience. We see this throughout all of the scriptures. We saw it in... Isaiah chapter 1, right, which I started this morning with. Though your sins are red like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow if you're willing and obedient. There's this, there's this tie here that salvation is immediate. But sanctification, sanctification is a theologically fancy term for just meaning becoming what you are, becoming more like Jesus. That, that when you became a Christian, like if you were to become a Christian here and now today and you knew nothing of Jesus, your life would be very unlike his And over time, you become more and more like him. You learn how to say no to the urges of the flesh. You learn how to say no to gossip. You learn how to say no to the things of the flesh. And hey, year after year, day after day, as I live my life in the power of the Spirit for God, I'm becoming more and more like Jesus. That's sanctification. It's becoming more and more like Jesus. And so salvation is immediate. And I love this about the kingdom of God and the truth of the gospel is that when we come to Jesus, Our guilt is paid in full. We are guilty. This sexual brokenness, these stats, the church is guilty. We are guilty of that in different ways. But when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, it is done. It is gone. It is paid for. You are forgiven. Your salvation has been granted to you in an instant. Your shame has been removed. You feel it. You feel your shame because we are trained to beat ourselves up, but God the Father looks at you, 1 Corinthians, uh, not 1 Corinthians, Colossians chapter 1, look at it with me. It's Colossians chapter 1, verses uh, 21 and 22. It's on page 982 in the Pew Bible. 982 in the Pew Bible, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. It says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Sexual brokenness, whether it was done to you or whether you were doing it to others, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Amen, church? You are forgiven. Regardless of how you are struggling with lust, with sexual purity, 
in Jesus, you are presented to God the Father as holy and blameless and above reproach. Are you kidding me? That's true. That is amazing. Salvation comes in a moment. God welcomes you in as you are. He says, come to me, my son. Come to me, my daughter. I know how bad it is. Oh, trust me, I know how bad it is. And I know how bad it's going to be tomorrow. And I know how much you're going to struggle the year after next. I know. Come to me anyway. And receive salvation and forgiveness and, and redemption and a new nature. And then learn to walk with me. I mean, God doesn't, he, he welcomes us as we are, but he loves us enough to say, don't stay where you are. Don't stay in the ditch. Don't stay in the gutter. Don't keep doing those things that steal your joy and rob your joy and affect your marriage and affect your relationships. Don't stay there. I love you too much to leave you there. And so come with me and I've got something better for you. And that's where sanctification comes into play. It takes step-by-step -step obedience. Continually surrendering and submitting to Jesus as our king. He's the authority. What does he command? I want to do that. I want to bow my knee in submission. Would you fill me with your spirit, with your power, so that I could apply the things that you have called me to apply? Stay in Colossians chapter 1 here. So this is salvation. You are presented holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Verse 22. Then look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Salvation is granted to you. It's given to you in an instant. Your shame is removed. You are justified before a holy God. Justification means that you are declared righteous before God. God looks at you and he says, you are holy, blameless, and above reproach. But then he keeps that standard up and he says, if you continue in the faith, Continue believing who Jesus is and what he's done. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. And continue walking with me day by day, step by step, learning how to overcome the bad patterns and habits and hurts and hang-ups that you have fallen into. I mean, sexual brokenness, usually it, it, it's a result of something that's been done to us. I, I don't, I don't want to shame you. Sexual brokenness, usually it's like, Something was done to us as a child. Oftentimes that's why this sexual brokenness manifests itself, manifests itself in some way. Or, or we just, we struggle to relate to humankind. We struggle to relate to our spouse. We don't understand our own bodies. We struggle. We are broken. And so Jesus is welcoming us to come and follow him, to walk with him. Step by step obedience. I think there's a, there's a misconception within the church I was at a conference last week on sexual brokenness and the church. Our whole staff was. And so I'm going to steal two analogies that this guy, Cy Rogers, gave. And he said, in the church, oftentimes we think that when we come to Jesus, we're clean, we're forgiven, and then we should be better in over our sin like that, right? And essentially, he says, this is ridiculous. And every now and then, God does that. God delivers people from bad habits and addictions and problems. But more often than not, we have to learn how to day by day, step by step, obey to Jesus and retrain our brain and how to work and retrain our stress patterns and retrain how we deal with pain and retrain how we deal with loneliness and retrain how we deal with rejection. Those are the type of things that lead us to sin. Rejection, loneliness, shame, brokenness, isolation. So he says, when you come to Jesus, you are saved. It is immediate. 
But to learn to walk with Jesus takes a lifetime. Like, how many of us would stand at the bottom of 15 flights of stairs and say, if I pray hard enough, if I believe enough, if I, if I will it, God will teleport me up these 15 flights of stairs? He could, right? God could do that. But generally, does God say, well, just use your legs and walk up those stairs? Same thing with sexual brokenness or any type of brokenness. I think we, we pray, God, would you take this away? Would you take this away? Would you take this away? And he's like, yeah, I will. As you go step by step, day by day, in a journey with me. And so maybe next year you're up two flights of stairs. Maybe the next year you came back down one. Hey, you still gained one flight. Going in the right direction. Another analogy is braces that Cy Rogers used. And he said, you know, I, I had bad teeth as a kid. I needed braces to fix my bad teeth. I, I, my, my teeth were a mess. I'll tell you about it some other time. I had eight teeth pulled, baby teeth, because they wouldn't come out on their own. And then I had to have chains hooked onto my teeth to pull the adult teeth in. I was just a mess. And so I get this analogy. Cy Rogers said, did you just pray about God fixing your mouth? Pray, 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 trust, trust, trust. God will do it, God will do it. And then boom, my teeth were straight. No. I had to go and get the braces on and I had to go in and I had to have them tighten the braces. And he said, your teeth shifted, they changed by constant pressure applied over the course of a couple of years. That's how we grow up in Christ. That's what sanctification is. It's constant pressure helping us to grow and change over years. And so submit yourself to Jesus' authority and lordship. Place yourself in his community and learn to follow him step by step in obedience. Give yourself grace where you fail. Jesus is sufficient. Be patient with yourself because God the Father is patient with you. He's leading you on a journey. These disciples that he spoke to in Matthew chapter 5, they were idiots. They, they got so much wrong. Peter denies Jesus three times as Jesus is being hauled off to be crucified. And Jesus puts up with him. So give yourself some patience. Just a few quick applications to close us down. Trust Jesus' righteousness and fight sexual sin with severity underneath his authority. Okay, church, trust in who Jesus is, what he's done in your place, on your behalf. But fight sin. Let's keep fighting sin together as a community. Secondly, if married, develop your sex life and give your body to your spouse. I put a verse in there, you can look it up. That's God's wisdom through his word, not my own. Although I think it's a great idea. If you are married, develop your sex life. Work on it. Learn to enjoy one another. Maybe you need to do that again. Maybe it's been years since you were newly married and your sex life has become dull and boring and dry or maybe it's non-existent. You have actually been commanded in Scripture to learn to enjoy sex with your spouse. I'll just let that be. If not married, practice self-control. Jesus is far more demanding than we would like to think. Culture's not going to tell you that. If you are single, sorry, you have to wait. You have to wait. Find a great God-loving person, marry them, and develop your sex life with that person. And until then, practice self-control. And when you stumble, when you fall, get back up, tell someone, hand in hand, keep walking towards the goal. But let's apply what Jesus has said. Eyes only for your spouse. If you have no spouse, eyes for Jesus. 
and then get help. Don't fight sin alone, church. This is an issue in some way, shape, or form for all of us. And God has placed you in a loving community. This is a safe, warm place. If I told you some of the things that I've been told by people in this church, you would be like, that's, that's okay to say in church? That's okay to share with a pastor? That's okay to share to another? Yep. God's not surprised by our filth. He, he's actually there in the midst of our filth, remember? And he's leading us home. He's saying, come to me, my son or my daughter. I have something better for you. I want you to flourish. I want you to enjoy all that I have for you. So come to me. And so church, get help. Don't fight sin alone. This morning we have an opportunity for you. If you feel like, you know what, I've been living in the dark and I need to bring this thing to the light, we have an opportunity for you to do that. Women, there's a little room out this side um, of the sanctuary, kind of right behind that, what is that, a vent? Right behind that vent, there's a little room there where a couple ladies are going to be there willing to pray with you if you just feel like, you know, I have some sexual brokenness that I want to process or just that I want somebody to pray over. There's a couple ladies who will be there praying for you and then men behind this map out these walls in the lounge. There's going to be a couple men there who will do the same thing, who will just pray for you if you want to. Just, just pursue God as it relates to sexual brokenness. We're going to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ by taking communion and, and singing about his goodness, his grace. And as we do that, if you feel led to pray with someone, you can go ahead and go to one of those rooms and pray with someone. If you just want to be in here and worship and be reminded of the goodness and the grace of God our Father, come to the table. The table is here to remind us of who Jesus is and what he's done in our place on our behalf. Sing. Sing the gospel. The songs that the worship team has selected are intentional to remind us that we are saved by Jesus' righteousness, not our own. So sing and celebrate the gospel, and if you need to process with somebody, if you want to pray with somebody, there's rooms there. Again, women this way, men that way. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. You are such an amazing God, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, overcame every temptation, Tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And you are sufficient. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would meet each one of us where we're at. I pray that you would lead us to where you desire us to be, in your presence where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. I thank you for instructing us clearly through your word and for being patient with us as we continue to strive to live in the light of the gospel to apply the grace of God. God, I pray that you would bring healing to this church. I pray that you would bring a new power to us to, to live out these good commands. I pray that our homes, our marriages, our, our neighborhoods, our workplaces would flourish as the gospel comes to life. For your glory, for our good and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. Amen.